This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our listeners who support us at patreon.com and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Capital is Dead, Is This Something Worse? by Mackenzie Wark. In this radical and visionary new book, Mackenzie Wark argues that information has empowered a new kind of ruling class. Through the ownership and control of information, this emergent class dominates not only labor, but capital as traditionally understood as well. And it's not just tech companies like Amazon and Google. Even Walmart and Nike can now dominate the entire production chain through the ownership of not much more than brands, patents, copyrights, and logistical systems. While techno-utopian apologists still celebrate these innovations as an improvement on capitalism, for workers and the planet, it's worse. The new ruling class uses the powers of information to route around any obstacle that labor and social movements put up. So how do we find a way out? Capital is Dead offers not only the theoretical tools to analyze this new world, but ways to change it. Drawing on the writings of a surprising range of classic and contemporary theorists, work offers an illuminating overview of the contemporary condition and the emerging class forces that control and contest it. Capital is Dead, Is This Something Worse? by Mackenzie Wark, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. It's conventional for people to compartmentalize when they interpret the world because conventional accounts are allergic to systemic thinking and to context. And so we spent the last few weeks jerked from the impeachment theater in Washington to apocalyptic wildfires in Australia to, finally, Trump's catastrophically provocative assassination of Qasem Soleimani. Next week, I'll have an interview on race and American empire with Nikhil Paul Singh. Sometime shortly after that, I'll have an episode specifically on Iran. This week, however... I'm interviewing Daniel Adana Cohen and Thea Riofrancos about their new book, A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, co-authored with fellow past dig guests Alyssa Battistoni and Kate Aronoff. I'm not going to treat each of these subjects separately because, in fact, they are not separate. Though it has many parts, operates at different scales, and contains manifest contradictions, the system that we live under is, on some level, one thing. This episode is about the Green New Deal, and a radical Green New Deal requires ending American empire. The U.S. remains the most powerful nation on Earth— And it uses its power to keep the world engaged in preparing for and waging war, when what the science clearly tells us is that we must urgently embrace cooperation and compromise if we are to avert climate catastrophe. 
This assassination, then, not only threatens to deepen decades of U.S. military involvement in the Middle East, but is also, more profoundly, an expression of a set of politics and policies that have long since come to pervade the United States, and that, amid the escalating contradictions that have ensued, reached their apotheosis in the presidency of Trump. This foreign policy, in short, is the opposite of the foreign policy that we need to confront global warming, and it is a depressing reminder of the authors of A Planet to Win's assertion that, quote, all politics are climate politics. Before we get rolling, it's good to be back. Last week, we took a week off, but we are now fully engaged at work and have a really stellar set of interviews in the works. And, as you likely know, this podcast would be entirely impossible without listeners, people just like you, supporting us at patreon.com slash the dig. If you contribute $10 or more a month, we also have left-wing books to send you in the mail as a thank you. One of those books is a book that I wrote which is out on January 14th. All-American Nativism, How the Bipartisan War on Immigrants Explains Politics as We Know It. So, if you have not done so already, please take a moment to contribute what you can so that we can continue to provide this podcast free of charge for everyone, regardless of their ability to pay. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig thanks and here's daniel donna cohen and thea riofrancos daniel is a professor of sociology at the university of pennsylvania where he directs the socio-spatial climate collaborative or sc squared he's also a senior fellow at data for progress thea is a professor of political science at providence college a member of the steering committee of DSA's National Eco-Socialist Working Group, and the author of Resource Radicals, forthcoming from Duke University Press. And she is also, as you may have noticed, the DIG's senior advisor. Both are co-authors of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal, with Alyssa Battistoni and Kate Aronoff. Out now, from Verso Books. Daniel Adana Cohen and Theoria Francos, welcome back to The Dig. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. The Green New Deal isn't a single planner piece of legislation. It's a, quote, vision on the scale of the existential threat to human civilization. Explain what the Green New Deal is and how it is and might be a framework within which we undertake a multi-pronged fight for massive social, economic, and political transformation, what's necessary to confront climate change. The way that I think about what's unique about the Green New Deal compared to all prior climate policies is the way that it steps outside of climate as kind of a narrow issue among many issues and also an issue that is kind of a priori perceived to not be um, 
inspiring or mobilizing to people, um, to ordinary people, and sees climate as um, our interconnected kind of material condition, intersecting with all realms of social, political, and economic life. So that's the kind of broadest way to think about it. And a little bit more narrowly, the Green New Deal, as introduced in the AOC Markey resolution and as kind of taken up by activists, is a policy paradigm that connects the climate crisis to the crisis of social and economic inequality and sees them as mutually producing one another, sees climate as worsening social and economic inequality and sees social and economic inequality or sort of more broadly the economic system that we live under as a key root cause of the climate crisis. Um, so that's that's what's unique about, about the Green New Deal compared to other climate policies. And I think what makes it so exciting and inspiring to a broad range of social movements that didn't previously see themselves in the frame of, of climate change or climate policy. And it's not a policy or a bill, though. What is it? So, yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the Green New Deal, as we know it, uh, now comes from, as Thea mentioned, this resolution that uh, AOC and Markey introduced, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez from New York, the Bronx and Queens, and uh, Senator Ed Markey from Massachusetts. Uh, they introduced in February 2019. And it's a sort of, multi, you know, something like 12, 14 pages, very broad-based vision, not a legislative text exactly. Um, and I think it has three broad characteristics, which are one, massive public investment, to decarbonize incredibly quickly, so something get to net zero carbon emissions at some point in the night in the 2030s. It's not really specified in the in the resolution text. Um, the second thing is a jobs guarantee, and the third idea is direct investment in working class communities and communities of color, um, so that they are the first ones to benefit from investment um, because they have suffered the most pollution and the most disinvestment overall. So, but the resolution, even on its own terms is just sort of the beginning of the conversation of, of the concept of the Green New Deal. That's right. So I, I mean, exactly as Thea said, the Green New Deal is an idea. And then the resolution, like I was saying, has some core markers, like the idea of a jobs guarantee. You know, it's not everywhere around the world has always thought that justice equal the jobs guarantee. But that's an important idea for the Green New Deal. You know, when, when AOC and Sunrise sat in, in Nancy Pelosi's office in November 2018, you know, green jobs for all, green jobs guarantee, like that was the, the big social piece. Um, and then with the resolution, we add in this idea of direct investment in, in frontline communities. But I think the to step back for a second, the point of what we're saying is that these are broad principles. They're not specific policies. They don't identify the mix of wind and solar and the grid. They don't specify which technologies are acceptable or not. I think they lay out a specific but broad vision for something like 10 to 20 to 30 years of policymaking. We're not going to get everybody guaranteed with a great job in six months. Um, and you're not going to erase uneven development. <laughs> and spatialized inequality within six months or even a year. But I think the best case scenario of this is that we spend the next 5, 10, 15, 20 years figuring out how to make all economics oriented fundamentally towards tackling climate change and inequality at the same time. And so it is kind of like a horizon and the New Deal reference, which I'm sure we'll talk about a ton. One of the things that's nice about it is this its idea of it's a terrain of struggle that could last potentially decades, um, but which is founded on at least initially a core kind of political coalitional alignment which is that the project is built from the bottom up rather than um, being distributed, you know, uh, sort of PDF by PDF from technocrats taking money from Wall Street. 
Yeah, and I think just to say a, a, just a little more, because I, I very much agree with kind of thinking about the Green New Deal as, as a horizon and also as a specific terrain of struggle, and the terrain has a bunch of kind of battlefields within it. And I think that the, the foci of the resolution kind of lay out what those battlefields are. We think about the energy system, the housing and transportation system, agriculture, community-level investment. And in each of those, we can see how specific combinations of social mobilization from below in alliance with insurgent left-wing policymakers against both the political establishment and corporate power is going to be sort of the structure of conflict at each in each of those battlefields. And we need to, in a way, tackle all of them at once, though we might get in a bit later in the interview into how we might sequence those fights over time in ways that build political power for more difficult fights. But but it lays out the terrain, it points to some specific battles and and kind of gives a hint of what the coalition might look like and, and who the enemies might be. You start your book with a vision of a world we might live in in the year 2027. It's it's a whole lot better than it is now, but it's not a utopia. In this near future, we have won major victories, but the struggle and history continues. You write, quote, fighting for a new world starts with imagining it viscerally. People mobilize around concrete projects that appeal to their desires and values. Explain why you chose this near future vision and why it's important to think about climate politics as something that does require radical change, but that's not an all or nothing fight where everything is lost if we don't end capitalism in the next 10 years, because that's probably not going to happen. One reason, Spoiler alert. <laughs> one reason we start with this sort of proximate future is just because the climate science tells us that what happens in the next decade or so is extremely important. And the other, you know, kind of as a, as a corollary to that, a decade is an imaginable amount of political time, right? I think that part of the 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 false narrative that we got about climate change in the past was that it was too big, it was too abstract, both in a time sense and in a spatial sense, for ordinary people to kind of grasp and get excited about. So I think that there's something about both delineating a bunch of poli- specific policy arenas and social struggles, and also following the climate science and saying, you know, the next 10 years really matters, that makes it like a, a, a framework in which pe- people and movements can can get involved and feel like their actions will actually make a difference within an amount of time that is kind of understandable. Yeah, um, that's exactly right. I like the idea of political time. <laughs> it's short. Uh, so one problem with climate politics is it's always the reference 2050, 2100. These, these timelines, which, you know, for anybody who's ever been to graduate school or worked as a journalist, you know, that's very procrastination friendly. <laughs> yeah, your book's due in 10 years. Like, great. Okay. <laughs> Let's see what's going on at the pretzel stand, you know. Um, we're recording in Philadelphia, by the way. So it's, uh, some local color. Um, so we start the book uh, with this uh, kind of storm, Katrina-esque storm in New Orleans. And, you know, in, in our rendering of it, most people get out in time. The city is very vulnerable. The um, levees have not been reconstructed adequately. And we know already that that's a, a problem. At the same time, you know, electric buses pull people out of the city. There's a very well-organized uh, response. We have relief workers uh, coming solidarity from China. But we also talk about how, you know, in this, again, imagined version, you know, decarbonization is not going quickly enough. This sparks a new wave of protest, demanding more rapid decarbonization, shutting down the final uh, coal field, which we suggest is in the Powder River Basin in Wyoming, which is, you know, likely. Um, one of the biggest problems with, like, the good news stories about climate change is that they're purely good. 
and they're un unbelievably so. And so it's easy for someone to say, well, it's just not realistic. Oh, the Green New Deal, everything's perfect, you know, blah, blah, blah. We have to be pragmatic. The climate science tells us things are going to be really bad and getting worse. And that's true. And I think we wanted to start the book with that tone of a, a reality. I mean, you talked about the mixed economy, but there's also just the mixed news of even very strong climate progress is going to occur in the context of yet worsening weather. I mean, much worse weather is already baked in for quite a while. So I think we have to get into the narrative mode of this is a really big challenge. It's going to be very painful. And even as things are going very well, year one, year two, year three, we're still going to be fighting each year that comes to have even more rapid progress in decarbonization, even more effective and egalitarian uh, relief from storms. And yeah, it's going to be complex. And we talk about in this case, you know, some people in this many, 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 many scenarios, some people refuse to leave New Orleans and, and they die and people are going to die. And that's just inevitable. So I think for us, a story about how good the Green New Deal can be cannot afford to be saccharine or overly optimistic. It loses its realism and it has no bearing with political reality. People are smart enough to understand that it's going to be a complicated world. And it's on that, within that context of complexity that we then make the case for the best possible development. And yes, that's not getting rid of capitalism within 10 years, but it's an aggressively egalitarian mixed economy. And we hope, we think that we can round liberals up and say, listen, like you guys have to join us. We saw what this was like in the 1930s. You're not going to have a free market utopia that's radically reducing emissions. And we hope to make enough progress to be able to have the even bigger arguments, you know, in the 2030s. And it's a politics in sync with the science because every fraction of of, of, of degree of warming counts and every fraction of a degree of warming averted counts. And so climate change is already happening, but to the extent, the extent to which it will happen is still up to us. That, that's right. And I, you know, I think the, the biggest idea in climate science, which I think in a way both activates, but also sort of shuts down the smart part of people's brains, the idea of tipping points or threshold effects or Thanks, feedback Malcolm mechanisms. Badwell. Yeah, exactly. Thanks, Malcolm Badwell. <laughs> Podcast but, that's more popular than mine. <laughs> yeah. So there is some reality to this. I mean, you know, if you unleash certain things, then there are self-reinforcing mechanisms. So if you have less uh, ice in the Arctic, then that, you know, changes the albedo effect, which essentially means that white ice reflects heat more than dark water. So you get these kind of feedback mechanisms. And that means that somewhere over two degrees Celsius, maybe a bit before, maybe somewhat after, we're not sure, you have more and more of these tipping points activated. And the problem is, I think that activates the part of the brain, which is like, oh, now I understand a nonlinear you know, tipping point. And then people say things like, oh, the horse has left the stable, the train has left the station, all we can do is adaptation, or all we can do is drink wine or whatever. But exactly as you said, it's not like that. All we know for certain is that the more you warm, the worse it gets, the less carbon we emit, the better off we are, the lower the risk of these bigger tipping points. Um, and then what's weird is, and of course, this is the same thing as capitalist realism. It's like, you know, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. It's easier to imagine a climate tipping point, which actually no one can really understand the physics of, than it is to understand a political or a social tipping point. So you have a lot of people in places like New York Magazine telling us all about the climatic tipping points that we're facing as if a political tipping point into essentially a, like New Deal style, war mobilization style economy is simply out of the question. But it's not out of the question. And actually, everybody understands what that, what that means. And it's far greater public direction and coordination of the economy, far greater public investment and in doing the things that everybody thinks really should be done or most people think should be done to avert disaster. And obviously, we'll get into that. And much more, much more detail as the conversation goes. Um, just to underline one one thing that that Daniel was saying, 
there's this kind of narrative strategy that we're using in the book where we're kind of trying to lay out what what wins might be possible and what kind of world they might set us up for in a kind of perceivable time frame of a decade or so. And that maps on in an interesting way to the science and the kind of tipping points and we're kind of offering a different perspective on those tipping points. But I just want to draw out that that also deeply relates to our strategic vision and the way that visceralness is not just a narrative quality. It's also something that we experience in terms of how we relate to politics. And if we have goal-oriented campaigning, and we draw a lot on Jane McAlevey's idea of, of structure tests, and can win things along the way towards our ultimate horizon of a thoroughly egalitarian and democratic and low-carbon society, then we build our coalition as we go along. So the, the kind of narrative approach in the book of kind of laying out a scenario in which we've won some things, but we have one at all is also what we imagine unfolding over time over the next few years as each kind of victory maybe it's you know getting green public housing for x number of units right or decarbonizing one city's transit system or you know changing the entire energy mix of the united states you know whatever the the wins are that aren't you know total or complete each of them is a victory scientifically in the sense that it averts some some amount of warming and some number of deaths, but that it's also extremely important in thinking of the cumulative way that political strength is built from below. So people feeling the impact of climate of public investments to avert climate change in their everyday lives actually like can dramatically in the tipping point sense change their sense of political possibility and a collective agency quite rapidly. You write quote in the 21st century, all politics are climate politics. This seems true on at least two, probably more than two levels. First, all politics are climate politics in the sense that energy has always been the foundational material substrate for everything, including politics. But now, with climate change, it also seems true in the sense that your co-author, Alyssa Battistoni, describes in a recent essay for Logic, in the sense that the Earth's free gifts, its reproductive functions— atmospheric cycles, the role played by forests as carbon sinks, that those things are now in crisis too. And you also write, quote, the climate crisis is entwined objectively and in our everyday lives with a broader crisis of capitalism. But my question is, to what degree is it not just a objectively interconnected crisis, which I think is pretty clear, but also a subjectively interconnected crisis and if it's not a subjectively interconnected crisis what political work or needs to be done or what objective conditions need to change to make that so well um just a huge question so i'm just going to for one kind of point of entry i think that it is starting to become a subjectively interconnected set of crises in the sense that um at the same time that the effects of climate chaos are increasingly and and they have been for for lowering low-lying coastal and island regions you know this has been the case for a while but increasingly for large swaths of the world are very visceral right like it's it's very clear that extreme weather and flooding sea rise level all of those are are affecting people's everyday lives and concomitantly the scientific prognostications have gotten more dire right um so so that that's the climate crisis piece and then that's on all unfolding against a background of a number of other crises that are increasingly salient to people. So we have the crisis of capitalism that that you mentioned, increasing socioeconomic inequality, stagnating wages in the U.S., like skyrocketing 
uh, rents and uh, uh, home prices, and and so people are less and less able to afford their their everyday lives. It's seemingly permanent stagnation in terms of just capitalist growth. Exactly, it's a dire low investment period, which is precisely why, or one of like fifty reasons why, we can't rely on the private sector to all of a sudden you know create green capitalism, which is kind of a myth. I mean, it's not going to happen without state incentives or direct um, state investment. So we have that crisis of capitalism unfolding that is very palpably felt everyday people at the same time that in most so-called advanced democracies and also in a lot of other political systems throughout the world, we have a crisis of the political establishment or the political consensus, right? The sort of um, taken for granted ways that policy should be framed of, of who's in power, of who is represented has also been deeply called into question by a number of political forces, many of them nefarious, right? So we have the rise of kind of neo-fascism, neo-authoritarian, you know, revanchist right-wing parties and leaders around the world. We also have in fits and starts, sort of left-wing, grassroots, socialist, a variety of, of, of forces contesting the right. So we have kind of more contentious or at least like up, up for grabs politics. We have increasing clarity that capitalism is not a system that works for everybody. It works for very an increasingly small amount of rapacious elites. And we have a very palpable climate crisis. And those are intersecting in ways that could be quite scary. And we lay out a little bit some of the terrible ways those are already going in you know places like Brazil. But it also is a moment for, for left-wing forces to seize and make clear demands around how the state and public investment should be used to help ordinary people and to address the and mitigate the climate crisis. But the subjective part, to what degree are people conceiving of it as such? But right. that was a good answer on right. the objective Oh, part. thanks. Um, <laughs> I appreciate it. Um, no, but I think that the, I did actually mean to come around to that. I think it's precisely the political crisis that actually helps pushes against people's preconceived like subjective categories for interpreting events and and do, do make them kind of does make the terrain of climate politics much more up for grabs and much more open to the types of radical solutions that we're proposing and the fact that like the green new deal actually pulls quite well even though it actually involves like a substantial reorientation of the state's actions in the economy shows that i think people on a kind of ideological, subjective, you know, identity, affective level, are actually quite receptive um, to radical change at this moment. Though, again, forces, good and evil, can sort of take advantage of that. One third of Americans can't afford their utility bills. Uh, that means that they either received a utility shutoff notice in the last few months, that they sacrificed on a necessity like food, or that they kept their home at an unsafe temperature. Uh, in the Mid-Atlantic, which is where we are now, half of black families can't afford their utility bills. So we know that the crisis of climate change, the crisis of energy, the crisis of everyday life is entwined. At the same time, if you look back at the last few years, there's been a kind of cottage industry and public opinion research. Do people interpret extreme weather events as being climate events? Does it, do extreme weather events increase people's perception that there is a climate change crisis and the evidence is muddled, if yes, a tiny bit? Um, and then the secondary question is, does that then increase appetite for climate policy? which is actually operationalized in most surveys as how much basically money would you be willing to spend a month in a carbon tax? And so what we have is like a weird situation where I think intuitively people understand that everything is connected. It's a teaching of Marxism, but it's also a teaching of Buddhism and of self-help. And, you know, people know there's like plastic bags, straws, problems. Um, and then you have like an official knowledge regime, which is producing ideas about public opinion, which are far narrower than both ordinary people's intuition and what experts think is actually required, just like wholesale transformation of the economy. And so I think a lot of actually climate wonks were surprised that the, the Green New Deal pulled so well and things in it that pull really well, things like a jobs guarantee, were never kind of put put on offer before. And so I think the, the point I want to get to is like, I think 
broadly speaking, now a substantial majority of Americans believe that climate change is a problem. Most people think that humans cause it. I think the missing link right now is a clear subjective connection, a connection in people's intuition that climate change policy and policies to address their everyday problems could be the same thing. You know, that's easy to show on graphs. People have been saying this, experts, quote unquote experts for a long time. But the thing we're trying to get with in this book is like in the short term, the things that you have problems with, having a job, having a good job, paying rent, making rent, you know, um, feeling ethically okay about your energy source. Those are issues that we can tackle with climate policies that are also social policies and economic policies that will make your life better. Like we can make your home way more efficient, lower your bills. Your neighbor who went to community college to become an electrician will have a job doing that union job. That's a really good job. So I, th I sort of feel like the thing that people have not really had a thing to grab onto are concrete policies because all they've heard about are long-term targets, natural disasters, and pricing mechanisms which are at best vague and at worst feel kind of menacing because, yeah, if wages have stagnated for 40 years, then an escalating bill once a month doesn't quite work. And everybody also intuitively believes that the rich are kind of getting off scot-free. And I work in carbon footprint analysis as one of my academic fields, and those people are correct. Like, rich Manhattanites and townhouses uh, do have gigantic carbon footprints, and we should not be taking uh, climate policies direct from, like, the Bloomberg apparatus because it, in fact, is living very well off of the way things go Getting the path forward, concrete policies that are imaginable, visceral, I think that's what we need to do. I don't think the challenge is convincing people there's a problem. The challenge is convincing people there's a way forward tomorrow or today. In terms of those concrete policies, you write, quote, to cut carbon, we need to work less and share the remaining work more evenly. And you also write, quote, averting catastrophe means transforming consumption and production prioritizing shared public goods that improve overall quality of life over the consumption of cheap, carbon-rich crap that we don't need. What sort of work do we need people to do and also to stop doing or do less of? And how could that simultaneously slash carbon emissions while improving people's work and non-work lives? How does that all connect up? That's a great question and a big one. Um, the U.S. is no longer a huge center of manufacturing, but yes, broadly speaking, Americans consume by weight far more furniture and clothing than they did 30 years ago, yet wages have stagnated. And what you're essentially getting, right, is as a substitute for social protections like healthcare and education, which are affordable, ideally free, you have access to credit which gives you access to cheaply produced commodities. Uh, and you get those instead of social services. And what we're saying is that things should go in the other direction. So we should grow the care economy. That means there should be more people working for good wages in healthcare uh, and education, but then all the way down to things like yoga. And we should have less production of like meaningless crap. And so the U.S. is not maybe the place that produces all the meaningless crap that we consume. But yeah, there may well be fewer 20 to 25-year-olds folding clothes at Forever 21, and those people might be running sports leagues in sports fields that are next to affordable homes, or they may be working as nurses or as educators, or they might be putting on um, plays, or they might be installing solar panels, I mean, depending on what that person uh, wants to do. But yeah, the idea is a gradual and substantial and sort of permanent expansion of the care economy, the knowledge economy spaces of leisure um, and play at the expense of the circulation of goods. And yeah. the idea is that this is not only lower carbon stuff, but 
in a happy coincidence that these are things that people actually want more on some level. That's right. And I mean, just quickly, you know, like our friend uh, Elizabeth Warren, you know, it's it's funny, you know, many years ago, I was I was writing up an article and I was like, who did that research uh, that showed that even though people have credit cards to buy all this crap, they never go bankrupt. People don't get, go bankrupt shopping at Forever 21. They go bankrupt because they can't afford their their health bills or their, their student debt um, or their mortgages. And actually, all that research was done by Elizabeth Warren, published this book and with, you know, covers that were in pastel and kind of oriented to get onto to daytime TV. And it was really, really good work. Like that you know, it's the golden age of, of, of Liz Warren's work on, on debt. And I think that's when she became friends with Bernie and, and all that. So, you know, I think it's important to say like, we want to move away from this obsession with private consumption that doesn't actually use up the lion's share of people's paychecks. Most people's money goes to these things like health and education, which we could make free, massively reduce people's like cost burdens. And yeah, they would have fewer end tables. I don't really think they would miss them. I mean, nobody in the 1970s was marching in the streets for more end tables and for more fast fashion, but that's what they got. Uh, and so, yeah, on the margin, I'll have another end table, please. But I would happily trade that for multiple free college degrees, physiotherapy every single day, you know, beautiful soccer field next to my home. And I think it, it what we're trying to do here is just reframe the way that the left thinks about consumption and the relationship between consumption and climate, right? Because a lot of us on the left, eco-socialists and, and others, have been very frustrated with the kind of focus on, you know, what do you buy or do you, you know, have a metal straw in your backpack to sort of use instead of a plastic straw? Or uh, should we be penalizing individuals for buying the wrong thing through a carbon tax? And we've, you know, many of us have rightly noted that this kind of individualizes a collective problem that it doesn't account for vast inequities in consumption. Like Daniel was talking about earlier, there are a lot, many people in the U.S. that are energy poor and actually don't get enough um, energy to, to meet their, their basic needs. Um, and also that it takes this kind of punitive approach that's not very inspiring to, to collective action. And, and where some leftists sometimes go with that is just to kind of say individual consumption doesn't matter. Consumption does matter, but consumption is never in an individual choice, even when it appears as such under capitalism. We know that our patterns of, of consumption, what we spend money on, what we buy, um, are highly patterned by policies, by institutions, by the balance of class forces, um, by how much discretionary income people have, by how much cheap credit is available to them. And all of those can be shaped you know, by, by the state and by what movements put pressure on the state to do. So instead of saying you know, consumption doesn't matter, it's thinking about how can we actually re pattern consumption in ways that are individually and collectively meaningful and less carbon intensive. And our gambit is actually those are the same, meaning that there are meaning, more meaningful ways to um, to relate to one another and including to consume things and eat things and live in places that are also lower um, lower carbon um, at, at the same time. Because a core ideological feature of capitalism is this idea that the economy and the world that we live in as as a whole is the aggregate of all of our individual freely made choices. Right. And when we just, you know, have a kind of cursory understanding of the history of capitalism and the history of American capitalism in particular, we know that that is definitely not the case. And for example, our choice, our quote unquote choice to drive a car instead of taking mass transit was, you know, let's say in the case of California, actually the result of tremendous lobbying efforts by the auto industry uh, to dismantle existing public transit um, and therefore leave people actually no choice other than the false choice of buying a car or leasing a car or, you know, um, uh, you know, paying for Ubers or, or whatever it is. And so healthcare and education are, are core to this, which is convenient because two other key left-wing demands right now are Medicare for all and college for all. What does the fact that healthcare and education workers are 
right now among the most militant sectors of U.S. labor. What does that reveal about both the current political economy and how we might go about building a new order to replace it vis-a-vis a Green New Deal? We should first just dwell on this fact. The most mobilized sector of the working class in the United States, the working class organized by unions, is the social reproduction sector. And that is the sector that has been the most friendly toward the Green New Deal idea and to climate policies more generally. All the way down to Keystone XL, you know, the Domestic Workers Alliance coming out right away in support of the movement against uh, Keystone XL. And of course, that has to do with the fact that a lot of unions, whether we're talking about auto workers unions or people in building trades, uh, especially people who don't work on, let's say, building retrofits, but people who might build pipes or so on, pipelines, uh, they have a kind of contradictory relationship to the Green New Deal or the climate policy, because until there is massive green investment in good green jobs coming from building way more wind turbines and solar panels, then the, the transition in work from fossil fuel intensive to renewable intensive is hypothetical. It's just a promise. Uh, whereas for teachers and nurses and so on, they can immediately join the climate fight as a no cost to themselves. Now, it's helpful that they are organizing also. They are the most militant workers. I have a sort of pet theory that it has to do with the fact that they are not jobs that are being de-skilled, in many ways being reskilled. I mean, most teachers have to be trained to be better teachers, better teachers, better teachers. They can't really, I mean, despite what Cory Booker and his friends in the charter school movement might want, can all be done by iPads. So um, there is a, it's, it's actually a high skill part of the economy, even though it's often characterized through prejudice as, as low skill. Um, but what's my kind of, my, my final point? So because there are so many workers in social reproduction, nurses, teachers, because they are very militant right now, we have to understand that the work they do is green work. And I think we have to sort of yoke ourselves to that part of the labor movement. There is a kind of neurotic obsession sometimes in some parts of climate policy with like, if we don't bring every single steel worker along, every single coal worker along, then we don't have like an equitable climate policy. And I think it's much more realistic to say we have to take the most militant sectors of the working class that are already mobilizing on behalf of the Green New Deal. That's why we have to, in fact, win power. And it's then through really strong investments in green industries that we're then going to get some of the other workers to come along once the, the green jobs are not a promise, but a reality. Um, it's just an unfortunate reality that somebody like Obama promised 5 million green jobs didn't deliver. Those are broken promises. And I don't think we can wait until we've convinced every single person who will benefit from green jobs that they're going to benefit from green jobs to do anything, or we'll be waiting forever. We have to understand that at some level, we have to start winning and investing money before we build our coalition even bigger. And the way we start is by getting with the workers who are already out on the streets. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I totally agree with this neurotic focus on on fossil fuel workers and sort of related logistics um, and energy sector workers that, that might be most immediately, in some senses, impacted by, for example, a massive transition to renewable energy. And it's not to say we, we address that these workers in the book and talk about how a jobs guarantee would address their needs quite immediately, but also some in, uh, additional kind of policy mechanisms to ensure that they maintain the same income and benefits, if not, if not more. But there is this neurotic mo- focus, both in, in the media. In fact, one of the few times that the media even pays attention to labor um, uh, related to the environment is to kind of counterpose jobs versus environment, uh, which is an extremely damaging and false dichotomy. And and then by the political establishment to, to delay climate action, to say, well, like, 
you know, the coal workers are going to hurt. Well, actually, coal workers are mainly suffering from the natural gas industry more than they are from, and the fact that coal is no longer economic or particularly economic as, as a fuel source and is being beat out by other fossil fuels. So this is, you know, first of all, not a problem that the Green New Deal is creating. It's already a problem. What are we going to do with Appalachia? We need, like a set of social policies of, of deep reinvestment um, and of unionized job guarantee. But I think that those are the highest hanging fruit. And But at the same time, there are specific policies that we all know could be helpful for those workers. Meanwhile, we have a lot of low-hanging fruit, and I don't mean that in a pejorative sense, but just a sense of workers that are A, already organized, are relatively ideologically left, are overrepresented women, people of color, immigrants, i.e. the sort of like emergent left-wing coalition, and are not only not opposed to a Green New Deal, many of their unions, whether it's, you know, the the Nurses United, SEIU, and others are actively embracing a Green New Deal, and their work is low carbon. So it's like, it's not a win-win, it's like a win-win-win-win-win times a million. And so I think that we focus on those workers for that reason, to kind of reframe the entire kind of quote-unquote jobs versus environment narrative and actually have a political strategy that can get us short-term wins while we address some of the thornier aspects of, you know, what do you do with the, you know, with the Gulf, for example. Well, let me just make something explicit for our listeners who might not. We, so demands for the just transition include things for fossil fuel workers, five years maintenance of current salary, full funding of pension, complete and adequate retraining, guaranteeing affordable housing and so on, uh, healthcare benefits extended. We so absolutely support all of those things. 100%. We want them. And there's no way that we could afford to just not organize with steel workers in Philadelphia who are worried about the refinery that just blew up, closing forever, uh, coal workers in Appalachia, you name it. I think what we're saying is that our political strategy can't depend on convincing every single one of those workers that once we win, everything is going to be great for you, because we understand that some of those workers might not believe that promise, and particularly because Obama made this kind of promise and broke it. So that many, many, many labor leaders say they hear the word just transition, and all they can think about is deindustrialization. That's the one transition they know, and they know it was bad. So we absolutely need to keep those conversations going. We need to make sure those promises are clear. Bernie Sanders has basically promised in his uh, climate plan to do all the things I just outlined in terms of maintenance and pay, benefits, pensions, and so on. We have to fight to maintain uh, pension agreements. We have to show trades workers that we can retrofit homes. They will benefit. People like Bill de Blasio need to, what they're not doing right now, go out on picket lines when energy workers are trying to unionize their solar or wind factories. So when a a liberal mayor flips a switch and says 100% clean energy, but never goes out to a picket line to support the unionization of the workers who are building that stuff, that's a huge problem. So all these things we can do in the meantime, but that being said, yes, let's look at the entire working class. Let's fight with who's fighting. Let's keep the conversations going. And let's just understand that not everybody is going to go to the mat for a promise before we've ever delivered even once, even one really good example of a just transition. The next few years, that's why this book's political idea is all about these ratchet effects. It's like there's going to be a huge crisis. There's going to be a green stimulus. And then we start, we show that we can make those promises come true. And then we go bigger and bigger and bigger. But there's going to have to be an iterative process of growth. World War II is another important early 20th century reference point. You write, quote, under a radical Green New Deal, the public sector would direct investment and coordinate production, much as it did during World War II. Yet, you also don't call for the federal government to run everything directly. You envision, quote, federal spending to empower communities at various scales to better control their own lives. Explain how you see this dynamic of a strong state operating to support economic transformation at different levels, including given that we must win a lot of this before we overthrow capitalism in terms of how a strong government would relate to private firms. And also, I should add, whether we can turn 
portions of capital against fossil capital in the short term, whether that's strategically necessary and possible. Maybe let me just try a couple of quick concrete pieces based on this idea of a Green New Deal for public housing, which is this act that uh, AOC and Bernie introduced and um, with Data for Progress and some groups at Penn I helped to do the research for. So this, this idea, which kind of puts into place and into practice some of these ideas about you know World War II, let's say, level government mobilization. The idea of the Green New Deal for Public Housing Act is a gigantic grants program such that every single public housing agency in the country can secure the funds to de- utterly decarbonize their public housing and bring it up to the highest possible standards. Okay, so how is this actually going to happen? The way it would work is that agencies would be encouraged, perhaps ultimately required, to apply for grants, but will be given those on the basis of showing very strong community participation, hiring predominantly residents of public housing, uh, giving contracts where appropriate to businesses and cooperatives owned by public housing residents to physically transform these buildings, to pull out the mold, pull out the lead, swap out the gas boilers, put in electric heat pumps, put on solar panels on the rooftops, more efficient windows, et cetera. So the first thing there is that that is just straight public investment, not through a whole bunch of tweaks and mechanisms that public agencies get, and then they spend that money probably through bids to private contractors, although ideally, again, worker cooperatives, putting people to work, physically transforming those buildings, decarbonizing them, attacking inequality and carbon, the same place at the same time. And that is, I think, one way of thinking about public spending. And there are going to be companies doing bits of that. If you go back one other level to think a bit more about sort of like industrial policy, NYCHA in the 1990s, not many people know this, but NYCHA, which is New York City Housing Authority, partnered with NYPA, New York Power Authority, a public utility. And together, they decided, okay, we need massively more efficient fridges in our units. That will save us a huge amount of money. So they set up a contest and said, which private fridge manufacturer can produce an energy-efficient fridge sized for apartments, which at the time did not exist. Um, And it was ultimately won by the manufacturer um, Maytag, based in Iowa. The fridges are manufactured, best as we can tell, in in Iowa and in Illinois. Those fridges, other public housing authorities were able to buy in. Ultimately, tens and tens and tens of thousands of fridges were made. The old fridges were recycled in Syracuse, uh, New York. And the public housing agencies got the fridges for free because the power authority, the utility, recovered the cost within three or four years from these huge efficiency gains. And this then became the standard Energy Star apartment-sized fridge for the whole country. And I think that tiny example to me speaks to the kind of public-private partnership that the Green New Deal proposes and that World War II had, which is not saying the public sector bears all the risk, the private sector gets all the reward. Like, let's say we give a contract to some company to build a gigantic hospital, and if nothing doesn't work out perfectly, the public sector forks out all this money. What it is is essentially saying, okay, there are like firms, which are in some sense black boxes. We're going to tell those firms, ideally firms with unionized work, here's what you're, here's what you're going to have to do for us. And if you do a really great job, then you're going to get a contract. And by the way, we're going to recycle the stuff that we replace. And in a lot of ways, that's kind of what happened in World War II with manufacturing. There's very strong incentive and often sort of pretty muscular efforts from the federal government to ensure that the transformation from the civilian economy to the war economy was done by uh, unionized firms. They were essentially doing what the public sector told them to do. And a lot of the rules of the capitalist game were suspended. So you had in World War II, for instance factories from Ford would send technicians over to the shop floor in Chrysler to look at how they were making some new tank come back to Ford so that they could build the same tank with the highest specifications. Now we call that industrial espionage. Back then, we called that getting the job done you know, as efficiently as, as, as possible. So I think that what we want to push towards is a vision of, in the next 10 years, a mixed economy. We are going to have to split the fossil fuel sector uh, from capital, and Thea can speak about that in a, in a second. But I think there is a vision where the public sector tells private firms what to do 
forces those private firms to hire low-income workers, unionized workers, and so on. And yeah, the private firm will do some of that work. So I think for us, it's really important that the public sector govern the energy system, that it govern the good. We probably need public utilities in most, if not all, of the country. But we don't need the government to manufacture every wind turbine. We do need those turbines to be manufactured in a safe way with unionized workers, importing materials from other countries that are you know, mined in a way that the communities uh, agree with. But Again, I, the notion that the public takes a really huge role doesn't mean everything gets done in Washington, D.C. in a boardroom. It means that the big political decisions about how the economy functions are taken by the public sector. And there's some subtlety to that difference, especially to people who have never studied economic history outside of U.S. in the last 30 years. But even within the U.S., and you know, the example I gave you with fridges, we have examples of very straightforward industrial policy that do the kind of thing that we need to do in the next few years that will make a really big difference. Yeah, just to expand with with two uh, additional points, I think that the left in the U.S. right now probably underestimates the degree to which industrial policy is going to become a huge terrain of political conflict as we're entering, you know, or the unfolding and intensifying climate crisis at the same time as a crisis that we talked about earlier, which is stagnant growth and investment. Um, on the side of private capital. And so private capital, I, I just came back from from a trip to Europe where this is very much, much more openly debated, I should say, than it is in the US, but it will be soon here, I believe, where private investors really see the climate crisis as an opportunity for a kind of neoliberal industrial policy of the sort that Daniel was saying we're not advocating for, where the public kind of does the in initial risky investment, maybe some of the initial R&D kind of acts as like a venture capitalist, but without the benefits, because all of the profits are privatized. Right. So the risk is socialized. The profits are privatized. And for for private capital, this is like a win win in the sense that it allows them to to kind of undertake some of the investments and, and appear necessary for to, to address climate change and appear kind of green in that sense. Um, but it also, again, kind of infuses them with some much needed incentives to, to re to kind of restart a, a growth cycle. So so that's exactly what we want to avoid. Um, but it's we could just point out Tesla is this story. Right? Yeah, Tesla, exactly. five billion in government subsidies. Right. One of Obama's greatest successes is Tesla. Right. And right now, the, the EU is already making – EU at, an, at a sort of regional level and, and individual member states are making massive investments in, in electric vehicles and battery facilities and all of these things. And, and again, it's not clear at all that there's social benefit from these investments other than, yes, we need the batteries to be constructed, but they could be constructed in a way where the social benefit is much more assured, whether it's through job unionization, worker ownership, cooperatives, or just the state having a, a take and getting returns on their investment. But um, that that just one thing I wanted to underline, and then and then a second thing to kind of circle back to some of the other parts of your question. I mentioned earlier this kind of false dichotomy between jobs and environment that we tackle. Um, there's a couple of other false dichotomies that that we tackle that are that are germane to the the question, and those are between like the national or the federal in the, in the U.S. case and the local, and between planning and democracy. These these two are kind of seen as as um, two sets of kind of trade-offs like either we plan or we're democratic um we can't be both thanks Hayek. um yeah thanks and when we do things it's, it's they sort of map onto one another right um and and like if we have nationally directed policy then like local desires preferences and democratic aspirations get sort of wiped out and we say actually this is totally false because in a system that is so thoroughly structured by class inequality race inequality geographic unevenness 
um, that we actually, in order to have local democracy in any kind of substantive sense, um, in order to have like local movements and collectivities that have kind of an impact and can actually kind of govern themselves, we need the national level investment. We need national level kind of equity in, in rules and procedures that actually allows like the local to flourish. Because right now, the way that, that the, the federal and, and the local interact allows for a lot of this kind of class, race, and geographic fragmentation. So we think of a bunch of creative ways in the book, and, and Daniel mentioned some of them also drawing on, on, on his research, recent research for around green housing, that federal investment can actually target and empower um, local level initiatives, whether it's in green housing, whether it's in um, cooperatively owned energy systems or municipally owned, we could think of all sorts of targeted spending that would allow those to flourish. Um, and we could also see that without federal spending, given those vast inequities that we know kind of structure the American landscape, uh, there's going to be vast inequities in what different localities can even aspire to do. You write, quote, For all its flaws, the original New Deal excelled in creating a positive feedback loop between public spending on collective goods and mass mobilization, thus overcoming anti-socialist hostility from the business class and political elites. A Green New Deal would likewise have to make climate action viscerally beneficial, a lot of viscera here, turning victories into organizing tools for yet greater political mobilization and for ongoing liberation. But didn't aspects of the original New Deal, as, as Francis Fox Piven argues, also ultimately demobilize movements by undercutting their capacities for disruption? She's, I think she's writing particularly about the labor movement. How do we keep that from happening and instead lock in a virtuous cycle of radical reforms that open the possibility for yet more? I think we could really get into the New Deal and we could talk about the Public Works Administration, the Works Progress Administration. Maybe we will a bit later you know, in terms of housing. But I would pivot to the example that I know well um, that's recent and I think is, has been on my mind because I've been spending time there. Uh, for years doing research is, is Brazil. And it, it, it gives us, I think, a good and a bad face of this. Um, so Lula gets elected for the first time, I believe, in 1992, 2002. Uh, Lula gets elected in Brazil, head of the Workers' Party, with a large, substantial support of the middle class, actually, and not a huge amount of support from very poor people in the Northeast, who it seems feared the instability of a socialist government. And one of the major big things that happened in the first few years of the Lula government is there's a large corruption scandal, which causes a large portion of the middle class to desert him. But he also commences cash transfers to the Northeast in particular, but essentially to poor families all over the country. And you essentially get a transformation of the electorate from a largely middle class kind of good governance type idea to a much more working class electorate, um, based on the fact that people who were initially fearful of the instability found that substantial federal investment in social policy stabilized their own life, and they became very attached to the working party left. And I think that's an example, in some ways, of a, of a virtuous cycle, although the degree to which this favored mobilization, I think, is, is open to question. The really big problem of what happened in the Workers' Party government in Brazil is that over time, a huge amount of the investment in working class families came in the form of support for them to enroll in private services. So instead of massively improving the free public health care that existed, they made it easier for people to buy into private health care plans. Instead of really dramatically increasing the number of public universities, which they did actually pretty dramatically increase. But you would, a sort of typical rising working into middle class person in Brazil would be working all, you know, all day, maybe working in telemarketing, and then going to a private university at night, 
paying into private healthcare, saving up money to send their kids to a private school, um, and and going to private university classes, and you sort of get a privatization of consumption. So I think all possible because of public subsidies provided by the workers' party government. That's right, exactly, uh, and and even down to like you know channeling pension fund investments um, and so on. So you know I do think if you look at the pink tide of Latin America, which is our pretty recent example of a large expansion of social welfare provision. We see many of the tensions that we had thought about in the New Deal. And I think our vision is that, yes, politically, you can score victories by providing social investments and people will benefit. But I think to your point and to the point from Francis Fox, Fox Piven, scholar of, of disruptive mobilization throughout the 20th century, we do need to make sure that there is a clear payoff for, let's say, labor mobilization. I think that directing contracts to workers' cooperatives is very important because worker cooperatives allow you to have a decentralized economy with multiple different organizations, but where those organizations themselves are controlled by workers rather than by private owners. Um, so, you know, showing victories that improve everyday life is important. And I think you're right to ask the question, how do we also victories that reward essentially mobilization? And that, I think, gets us towards labor, housing movements, immig immigrant rights organizations, you know, much more favorable policy towards immigration. And in my mind, I think something we haven't talked about enough is is rewarding worker cooperatives. That, to me, is a long-term structural transformation of the economy. There's been energy for it for a long time, but we just don't live in a country where it's that beneficial for workers to take collective ownership over their firms. If it were more beneficial and that helped them win contracts to do good work that benefited people, then I think you really start to change the distribution of power in the economy. It's not enough to do everything, but it's it's, it's a lot. Yeah, no, just to, to underline um, that, and I... I, I you know, wholeheartedly agree that that the pink tide governments actually provide a lot of useful lessons, negative and positive, to draw on um, for leftists interested in how the state and movements can kind of interact um, and transform the economy. But the Green New Deal as a vision and as a set of, you know, policies that, that unfold over time will not be successful in the radical sense of transformative change that we envision without empowering labor. And that, that needs to be, you know, at the, at the forefront, you know, not, not something that's a compromise or kind of position, but is, you know, a kind of um, non-negotiable. But as Daniel said, there's a lot of ways that the working class and, and labor unions can be empowered. Some of it is through, of course, through their own struggle and militancy, number one. Um, but policies we know create constituencies and can shore up popular power or not. So some of it has to do with policies and uh, labor reform that makes it easier to unionize and makes the, the benefits of, of unionization accrue more directly to workers is, is part of that. But again, so is experimenting with other forms of ownership and as much as possible through public procurement um, and other policies um, to actually encourage workers to, to manage enterprises themselves. And I think through that, you do get, you don't t necessarily escape the, the tension between, uh, that I think Fra Francis Fox Piven is noting, between providing for people's basic welfare in some ways can have demobilizing effects, and we could get into that, and there's pink tide lessons there, but not necessarily. Providing for people's basic welfare can also obviously free them up to engage in, you know, democratic contestation just as much as it, you know, might have the opposite effect. So I think we need to keep that that tension in mind, but as much as we, as much as possible to forefront labor power through both worker ownership and union militancy as like key kind of policy pieces and drivers of the Green New Deal. Another potential example there is Green New Deal social housing. Could could that expand the constituency for left politics in maybe like the inverse way that the New Deal orders built environment perversely laid the groundwork for right-wing reaction against the New Deal order? 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I'll I'll let Daniel speak to that more since that that's his um, uh, area of expertise. But I just want to speak to that really quickly, which is absolutely we know that that the built environment that the New Deal and subsequent federal investments created of of um, single occupancy housing and and highway sprawl are actually part of the deep reason for the rise of the new right. And we could explore all of the connections between the two, but it's it's probably fairly obvious to to listeners of this show and. Kind of conversely, building green social housing is not just about the two super important or three super important things of creating jobs, reducing inequality in housing and reducing emissions from housing, but also about creating the types of social environments that enable collective action through density, through social contact, um, through just like the literal spaces in which people can meet, plan, organize, um, which are denied to us by, by the way that the built environment is structured currently. The story that most people, uh, well, let's say people who listen to this podcast have probably all heard of, or most of them have heard of redlining, which is this outcome of New Deal policy, which was essentially saying, we're going to have you know government-facilitated loans to people to buy homes in quote-unquote good neighborhoods, which essentially turned out to be white neighborhoods, and neighborhoods that were redlined were, were black neighborhoods and deemed too risky for mortgage lending. The story of the New Deal housing that most people don't know um, and have forgotten is that before that even happened, there was a fight about whether social housing should exist and who would benefit from it. And this was a fight that was, you know, led on the left from someone called Catherine Bauer. She, you know, you know, was like romantically linked to Lewis Mumford, but broke up with him because he was a big jerk to her. Um, she traveled around Europe, saw the social housing there. And her intuition very early on was we're only going to have real social housing if we have a big coalition for it. So she got involved in the Labor Housing Congress uh, in Philadelphia, actually. And the sort of tragedy of the New Deal was that the Public Works Administration was building very high quality housing that was meant to be a genuine, what we'd call now public option, housing that had no income ceiling, that was good enough for anybody to live in, and that would essentially push the entire market into a better place. And where you might have ended up with something similar to the best cases in Europe, where public housing is just really good housing, and you just essentially choose, I want to live in the most luxurious possible housing I can afford or simply very good housing at a, at a lower rate. So the Public Works Administration was building this housing, but the big fight over the Housing Act was in 37, before the PWA housing was really finished and before the coalition was able to gel around a, like a, a, a finished project. Um, so you didn't quite have the labor housing coalition that you needed to push through the social vision. And so what, what happens in 37 is that in 37, the defeat of the public housing ideal is that Public housing is then reserved from 37 onward only for the poorest of the poor and ultimately legislated such that only people who make 20% below the amount to afford market rate housing, that's the ceiling for getting into public housing. And then they also set up ceilings for how much can be spent per square foot. So you ultimately get out of 37 a two-tier housing system, which is social housing for rich people and upper middle class and middle class white people, aka subsidized mortgages, and very low quality public housing for the poorest people. And there is a lot of good public housing in the United States, but that's where localities are essentially fighting with one arm behind their back to create something decent with very restrictive federal legislation. Okay, all that's a way of saying that housing could well be, almost became in the United States, is in many European countries and places like Vienna and places like Finland and Sweden. Housing could be a case where you have a public option that is very high quality, advances the highest standards of green construction and comfort and modernity. And you have now, all across Europe now, year after year, green housing retrofits for public housing and green new social housing winning major architecture prizes for being at the forefront of quality, green, cost-effective, comfortable construction. We could have that again. And I do think that, yes, housing is you know, something like 40 million American households pay a thir- over a third of their income in rent or in mortgages. Housing is a huge, and even for those who don't, housing is a huge part of their spending. 
public investment in housing and retrofits and new housing could create a political constituency out of an issue that right now is just an irritant. There's starting to be a political constituency around healthcare. There's obviously political struggles around labor. Weirdly, housing has become totally individualized. People experience it as an individual failing. But I think it is on the verge of providing a whole new arena for leftist politics, showing that collective action, public investment can create a far higher quality life uh, than the private market can. Well, serendipitously, the Green New Deal for housing introduced by Sanders and AOC is the very first piece of Green New Deal legislation. And you wrote a lot of that bill. I, I helped. <laughs> <laughs> well, why, why is housing an important place to start? You just talked about it as a constituency builder, but why is it important? Why is it kind of a exemplary of the socioeconomic ecological nexus that the Green New Deal is all about? Great. great. That, that's a great question. Um, I mean, there's so much to say about housing, and obviously I could just go on for hours. Um because this is what I work on mainly. But very briefly, I mean, in terms of carbon, 15% of carbon emissions come from homes. It's the big, of all building types, homes are the biggest one. That's the sixth of US carbon emissions. Another 15% comes from personal car travel. So you put those together and simply where you live and how you get to and from work, that's a third of emissions in the United States. The Green New Deal for public housing idea is repeal the fair cloth amendment so we can build new public housing and radically transform all the public and just to housing. pause you there there isn't there is a law that bars new federal spending on public housing we're not allowed to have more public housing than there was something like 20 or 30 years ago I absolutely exactly absolute lunacy okay continue it is absolute lunacy yes um <laughs> and it was snuck in as a budget amendment you know um i don't the details are escape me off the top of my head but so the green new deal for public housing transforms Public housing decarbonizes it, takes it up to the highest standards. And I think the real benefit of that, and we showed in the research with Data for Progress, Green New Deal for uh, public housing communities, is you're actually seeding an entire green homes industry. But let's say more broadly, the vision of transforming the homes we already have into extremely energy efficient, very comfortable homes that use only electric uh, power and that essentially cause no carbon emissions, and also making it so that anybody can afford to live in a walkable or dense neighborhood. So that's like from rent control to new public housing in urban places. Because that's becoming a luxury amenity that's essentially publicly a publicly subsidized luxury amenity. That's right. There's an app. You, know, you can get an app on your phone that tells you how walkable a neighborhood is and it's owned by Redfin, which is a real estate company. Or you go on Zillow. I mean, walkability is essentially a luxury feature. It's bleak. Yeah. So I think, you know, abstracting from the particular legislation of Bernie and AOC, which is really great, the, the broader vision is, yes, we need to create communities that facilitate no carbon life. That means you can walk to your daycare, you can walk to your job, you can walk to the pharmacy, um, where you'll ultimately be able to get legal uh, weed, which is a key component of our no carbon luxury. Yeah, so we have ultra modern homes that we can all live in, and we can all live in neighborhoods that are super well connected. Um, and in order to do that, you essentially have to dramatically curtail the role of the private market in land. Um, and in home construction. So yeah, I, t to us, that's, it's, it's a really key piece of the puzzle. And the last thing to say about this is that housing is a lever. Um, AOC talks a lot about how housing is infrastructure, and I think that's right. And if you look at the older you know, ideal of public housing in the US, if you look at the achievements in a place like Vienna, where a third of the housing is public, a third of the housing is cooperative, public housing is a form of social policy. So when you're building new green public housing or retrofitting it, per AOC's bill or per Ilhan Omar's bill to put a trillion dollars into new public housing, then you are going to put in daycare centers on the ground floor. You're going to put in uh, grocers that sell 
you know, organic food at affordable prices on the ground floor. You're going to put in dental clinics, libraries, theaters, all things that you've had in U.S. cooperative housing in the best examples of public housing and around the world. And so that I think part of what the idea of the Green New Deal is everything you do has to check multiple boxes, social boxes and ecological boxes. And green housing is not just a box floating in the sky that is, quote unquote, green. Green housing is the foundation of a communal social life where you have access to the things that you need. All of those are ecologically organized, and all of those make your everyday life simply easier and, and better and provide new opportunities to kind of have a, have a good time. So I think it's actually a pretty beautiful vision, and what's shocking is that we could really just get there in a small number of years for more and more people um, simply through major public investment. Yeah, you say, uh, you write, quote, 10 million units of social housing would cost less than the recent Trump tax cut. And yet stuff like this seems so impossible. The Republican right suffers from no such inhibition in imagining their dystopian future that we seem, the center left at least, seems to face when, when, when confronted with a proposal for 10 million units of social housing. Yeah, so Ilhan Omar just proposed 12 million units of social housing, large part thanks to pressure from the Homes Guarantee Campaign, which full, full disclosure, I'm, I'm a part of the People's Action Homes Guarantee Campaign. So 1 trillion, 10 years, 12 million units of social housing. How much of an annual budget increase did the military budget just get from Congress? I believe well over $100 billion. No discussion. How are you going to pay for it? But at an annual level, the army just got a budget increase that nobody really asked for of greater than the amount that it would cost to create well over a million social homes every single year to the highest environmental Standards. So we do live in a time of absolute insanity, but we have the best ideas. Yeah, and just to, to add two more boxes that the that the green housing ticks. One is it creates upfront a lot of jobs um, in terms of the construction of the housing or the retrofitting of existing housing. And then when we think of maintenance over time, we could think of other types of jobs that it, that it might generate even after construction is over. And that you know again can speak to kind of. The broadening of the constituency, because you have the constituency of the people that benefit from the housing, you have the constituency of the people that benefit from the jobs, those may overlap, but we could imagine that they don't overlap entirely. So that's kind of expanding our, our constituency for further radical action. And then other downstream effects, and we've been talking about positive tipping points and ratcheting effects. And Daniel laid out this really beautiful vision of a vibrant community that can sort of like eat and and shop and fulfill basic needs kind of within sort of dense proximity. And um, we could see how that would benefit friendships and family life. But we could also see, and this just now to make it a little more concrete what I was saying before, we could also see how that would have political benefits, right? The fact that we, A, spend so much of our money and then B, kind of time to secure housing um, in an increasingly insecure environment is extremely draining and stressful and makes it hard for people to engage in political activity. And then the housing we acquire puts us in individualized boxes far away from where we work and play. And so if we think of how dramatically that could be altered actually in a quite kind of pragmatic time frame, we could also think about the new types of political constituencies, collectivities, identities that would proliferate in these vibrant communities and that would actually have the time and the literal space to engage in political work to demand more. And so that's kind of the kind of downstream cumulative effects that that we think that green social housing and, and why it's such a great thing to focus on as, as a first uh, um, policy. That's right. And I actually have to mention one last ultra concretely thing that green investment in social housing or anything else to do is that that's actually how you literally decarbonize concrete. <laughs> like concrete is the, one of the most carbon intensive 
processes in the entire world. But there are people in California who are making virtually no carbon concrete, very low carbon concrete. But until you have a market made for it, it's just not going to exist. And, and the public sector, the government could be the market for The government could be that market. So people say like, oh, you want to build 10 million units of housing, you know, oh, you're just going to like stimulate the economy and destroy everything. And it's such a contradiction. Well, hopefully tens of millions of immigrants will come to the United States in the context of climate change. People need places to live. So are you going to let the private market build, you know, well over a million units of crappy, shoddy, super polluting housing every year? Or are you going to say, no, through public procurement, we're going to develop the best possible technologies. We're going to move housing from a laggard in technology to the cutting edge of technology. We're going to create a no carbon concrete market. We're going to make every window maker, the world's most efficient window maker in this country, teach every American those skills. So the construction industry when governed by public requirements for both really good jobs and the most ecologically sound materials. That's actually how you transform the entire built environment and downstream all the way down to the to the materials. And that's absolutely doable. We know how to do it. And again, the difference between public procurement and private insanity is very stark. One more question on housing. What does decommodifying housing, such a big portion of the housing sector, mean for the economy as a whole, given that financialized capitalism's colonization of of real estate blew up the global economy a decade ago and pushed millions of people out of their homes. It's not it's a pretty core feature of the way that financialized capitalism works today. I mean, there is a problem, which is that half the global wealth is in housing, and that's not a problem that we can solve in the sense of making whole <laughs> those investors. You know, something that came up in New York State where we just won pretty strong improvements to rental protections is what you're really talking about, I think, what we're talking about is a massive public option in housing through new social housing, retrofits, improvements to affordability programs. So we're not talking about every single home in the country being publicly owned. We're not talking about that. But I think what we are, the idea is that you would shift towards a housing market, which is more like the pen market, where, yeah, if you're a landlord, you might make a reliable 3 or 4% return every year, maybe 5%, but it's no longer a part of the economy that gets super profits. And housing is not a normal commodity. If there were super profits and pens, that would be challenging. And I guess we would all take fewer notes in <laughs> notebooks. But uh, like essentially kind of monopsony market for big, you know, for big investors in housing means that people literally can't afford to have a roof over their head. I mean, I was just literally in Brazil a week and a half ago talking to a housing movement there. We're talking about the Green New Deal for public housing. And they just could not believe that there are 500,000 homeless people in the United States right now. That's well, that's a higher percentage of the population is homeless in the United States than in Brazil, which is a country in the midst of a horrifying, brutal recession that has something like 100,000 people without homes. And they kept asking me, is that possible? 50,000 in New York alone. But Daniel, it's the richest city in the world. I'm like, I know, you just wrote a Bernie speech. That's our reality. <laughs> Simply describing reality is apparently a socialist speech in the United States. So yeah, I think the idea of decommodifying housing in the long run is that housing shouldn't be a market. That would be great. In the short run, it's taking super profits out of the housing market. And that itself would be a dramatic transformation. It would be traumatic for people who invest in housing. But I think our concern is for the people who don't have homes or who are being bankrupted by living in a home, not for the people who have gazillions of dollars and are using it to make the rest of our lives impossible. This is Sarah Jaffe, and you are listening to The Dig with Daniel Denver, my favorite podcast for thoughtful discussions on the U.S. left and beyond. And you can support it on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters at Patreon.com and by University of North Carolina Press, which has loads of great titles, perfect for dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Race for Profit, How Banks and the Real Estate Industry 
undermined black homeownership by Kianga Yamada Taylor, a frequent guest right here on The Dig. In the late 1960s and early 1970s, a wave of urban uprisings pushed politicians to bring about an end to the practice of redlining. Reasoning that the turbulence could be calmed by turning black city dwellers into homeowners, they passed the Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968 and set about establishing policies to induce mortgage lenders and the real estate industry to treat black homebuyers equally. What ensued was a bonanza of racist corruption at the expense of black homebuyers. The racist exclusion of redlining had been transmuted into a new phenomenon of predatory inclusion. Race for Profit uncovers how exploitative real estate practices continued well after housing discrimination was banned, and new policies meant to encourage low-income homeownership created new methods to exploit black homeowners. By the end of the 1970s, the push to uplift black homeownership had descended into a gold mine for realtors and mortgage lenders, called by Michelle Alexander, a horror story of racial capitalism and long-listed for the National Book Award. Race for Profit reveals how the urban core was transformed into a new frontier of cynical extraction. Race for Profit, how banks in the real estate industry undermined black homeownership by Kianga Yamada Taylor, out now from University of North Carolina Press. You argue that we must massively expand what you call low-carbon leisure. And you write that leisure was core to the original New Deal, too, in part because there was, and I did not know this, a lot of worry that a 40-hour work week would just give people a lot of free time that they would use to get drunk. Quote, New Deal agencies invested more in public recreation than almost any form of infrastructure, rivaling sewer systems and educational facilities for total dollar outlays. FDR's labor secretary, Francis Perkins, wanted even less work, a 30-hour work week, but met opposition from business. And so, quote, ultimately, the decision to stimulate consumption instead of promoting leisure was a way of avoiding deeper structural change, to grow the pie rather than ask who was eating most of it. Explain this distinction you're drawing between leisure and consumption and why it's an important one in terms of how we think of the future we want to make with a Green New Deal. Thanks. That's a great question. And it was through a kind of long series of rabbit holes that I came to this great article in 1934 in the New York Times Magazine by a sociologist, of course, someone like me, Jesse Steiner. And so the the New Deal is a triumph of the public recreation movement, which just as you were saying, the public recreation movement had existed for many years, but um, with the arrival of the 40-hour work week and the end of prohibition coinciding, there's a horrifying paranoia that workers would spend all their time in, you know, what they then called the whorehouses, uh, you know, casinos and, and in bars. And so public recreation was seen as the solution to this problem. And we think it's a very good, the problem was badly posed, but the solution was good. And so, you know, in Philadelphia, where we are now, you know, the Wissahickon was greatly expanded by the New Deal. In New York, Robert Moses, who was not a great person, but Robert Moses had a staff of 1,800 people. So they built two massive beachfronts, including Orchard Orchard Beach, which is beautiful, um, and Pelham in the, in the Bronx. Uh, 
you know, all the best work that Robert Moses did were swimming pools, basically, and, and, and beachfronts during the, the New Deal. So there was this idea that people should have high-quality places to spend time that would be great, good, good for their family, good for their fitness, happiness, etc. And again, as you were saying, you, as you quoted us saying, the, the expenditures were, were very high. Um, one might ask, do people really love these things? I mean, would they be willing for even, to have even more of it? And I think that is a case where you look at Northern Europe and you look at places like Holland, which have very permissive rules in terms of voluntary work time reduction. In Holland, you can just unilaterally reduce your hours at most firms, and people take it. And so the fundamental bargain that we need, and we talked about this to some extent earlier, is with free healthcare and free education, you essentially remove the drivers of debt and you give people really nice places to go, not the mall, but the volleyball court or the basketball court or the park or the theater, and offer that as an alternative to making a little bit more money to buy a few more T-shirts. And I think the evidence we see from around the world is that once you've decommodified basic services, people do want to take that extra time and spend it with people that they love or people that they don't know, uh, you know, if it's like an ultimate Frisbee game or something like that. So I think this is important to our economic argument that we need a last stimulus. And, and that is this fundamental idea that what we have to create in the U.S. over the next 10, 20 years is the physical landscape, literally the physical landscape for dematerialized prosperity. We have to create, physically speaking, temples of public luxury that allow us to live very, very well without consuming huge amounts of stuff. And that is a bit hard to imagine in the confines of like a day-to-day leisure decision you might make now. But, but broadly speaking, we, we don't have this possibility right now. We live in like balkanized, wildly unequal landscapes that are in many places harsh and polluted and so on. But we can build out a world in which it is possible to live a far better life for 99% of people who are not already billionaires, far better life than they do now, that will require physical changes to the landscape, but that will then subsequently allow us to have beautiful reforested lands. We can go hiking in those lands, parks where we can play, sports near where we live, and so on. So I think that the New Deal is exciting because it does have that really nice precedent of physical interventions to the landscape. Some of it is just direct ecological restoration. I mean, the Civilian Conservation Corps was mostly, you know, planted like three billion trees, that kind of thing. But also an idea of, 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 of play and, and, and joy. And I think that it is one of my problems with the degrowth movement and that idea is that it sort of assumes that everything we have right now is fine and we just need less stuff. And it underestimates the extent to which we need to somehow rebuild and reorganize our physical environment such that we can then have a kind of permanent dematerialized prosperity. And I, in some ways, I think that's one of the most central ideas of the whole book and, and of what we're about is this notion that prosperity doesn't depend on endless material growth. And that's not like a moral point. That's just a point about how we can organize everyday life outside of a market society. Yeah. And and just to expand on this a little bit more, one of the things that the focus on reducing the work week, on jobs guarantee, and on building out new forms of public leisure gets at is kind of breaking this extremely vicious cycle of overwork and consumption of carbon intensive goods, um, which we are all trapped in. And it's destructive environmentally, it's destructive also psychologically into our the fabric of our, our communities where, you know, we're working multiple jobs to survive, um, we're economically precarious, um, we kind of seek solace and refuge in, you know, streaming Netflix, which we don't talk about enough how just extremely, I just read an, an article recently about how streaming an hour of Netflix is as, uses as much energy as two fridges in a year, right? So these are actually quite carbon intensive um, forms of, of entertainment, of, of, you know, buying the, you know, the Forever 21 
clothes produced through these carbon intensive supply chains, you know, we could go on, but it's totally understandable. And all of us are, you know, quote unquote, guilty of this where, you know, we're overworked, we're tired, we do the things that are immediately in front of us and kind of help us maybe relax or disconnect momentarily, um, so that we can go to work the next day. And that cycle is, um, is destructive to the environment and sort of reinforces people's exploitation. So we kind of reframe that and thinking like, first of all, we need to reduce the work week. We need to do that so that people have more time to um, spend with their families, to engage in democratic politics, but also because the o- overwork is an overproduction is part of the climate crisis, right? And then when people do have more free time, we're not envisioning them shopping more. We're envisioning them spending time in these new forms of public luxury that, that we build out with public investment, which then have this added benefit, as Daniel was saying, of being a very, I'm not going to use the word visceral again, but tangible and beautiful form of public investment that immediately binds people to the political project, right? I mean, it, it actually like helps them feel like they're part of a collective that can make things um, and then enjoy them. And then in addition, it, even though we're talking about reducing the work week, redistributing work and settling into kind of a slower groove of, of capitalist production, we also want to think about the ways that low carbon leisure spaces also create new forms of, of jobs in an ongoing way to maintain those leisure spaces, you know, to be the, the ticket seller, even if even if the seats are free uh, or whatever it is, right? So, so there, there's just these are whole like ecosystems that are social, environmental, political at once, and that are attractive, you know, even on just an aesthetic level, but also in terms of the hu- types of social relations that they enable. That's right. And we have like 4,000. I mean, the, the studies on lower work hours and lower emissions are very consistent. And they're also always almost all done in Northern Europe and places with welfare states. So that's the in the U.S., people many times want to work more hours because they're so badly paid. Right. And the, and the studies, on, just to add a third variable in their own happiness, right? So like the less that we work, the more time that, you know, not, not working less because we can't find a job. That's obviously not happy. That's anxiety producing. But if we know that jobs are guaranteed and we know that most of our social needs are met by the welfare state and by public provisioning, then we can actually feel happiness in as freedom, right? And so so this is kind of, you know, and we might talk more about, about these sort of affective identity types. But to the green new between individuals and the green new deal, but this is like a key place where we could see actually generating public joy through just re transforming our relationship uh, to work. This reminds me of of something I just read in in Martin Hacklin's book. He cites Adorno's argument that we have this very crappy and constrained version of leisure at present because it's organized to anesthetize us so that we can get back to work to like so that we can recover and work again and so we have these sort of like shitty little hobbies or shopping habits but not actually the the sort of fundamentally free time that involves people deciding what's important to them in life and pursuing those things right i mean it's kind of the the crudest form of of social reproduction in the sense that, you know, these kind of quote, kind of quote unquote free time, quote unquote leisure, which are highly constrained in multiple ways are kind of reproducing you as a, like I was saying with the Netflix thing, like you go home, you stream something so that you can fall asleep so that you can wake up the next morning and work at, at your crappy job. But they also create all these sort of subjective attachments um, to the system and sort of kind of enable your identification as a consumer. And that has all sorts of pernicious political and environmental effects. So I think that, you know, if we reframe social reproduction much more broadly, think about forms of collective consumption of public luxury and, and other things to do with our with our free time, we still reproduce society, but we reproduce a different sort of society and different sorts of individuals. Yeah, when millions of French workers went on strike in the early 
1930s, ultimately winning the first paid vacation in, in France, two weeks paid vacation, and a shorter work week, their um, big banner read, Life Belongs to Us. Let's talk about electricity. Roughly four-tenths of energy in the U.S. is consumed as electricity, most of it at present fossil-fueled. But in order to decarbonize our, our economy, we must, quote, electrify almost everything that now runs on fossil fuels, from stovetop cooking to bus travel, so that it can run on renewable energy instead, while also increasing efficiency and building clean power supply. Why is electrification key, and how will we go about generating all of the additional power we need without burning fossil fuels? The short version is that you know a lot of the energy we use that's not electric electricity is burning fossil fuels. Um, so that, you know, it's like running an internal combustion engine in a car or a truck, the kind of heating process required to make steel, but also, yeah, the stove, the water heater, and so on. There are ways to create no carbon combustibles like synthetic methane. Uh, there's a broader sector we'd call power to gas, which is interesting, but that's never going to produce uh, anywhere near the majority of our energy use. So Electricity can be decarbonized because you can provide it with hydro or, in the best case scenario, wind or solar or even things like enhanced geothermal energy. And so what all this means is that for large parts of the energy system, we have to transform them from something that is burning something else, maybe like a miniature power plant in your car, into an electrical system uh, that may run on something like a battery or with electric buses they could run with just a trolley line, for instance. That's the ideal form of buses, trolley bus. Okay, so what all this means to electrify almost everything, is that we do actually need, on the one hand, to take out a whole bunch of fossil fuel energy from our system, which is the majority of the energy produced in the United States is through fossil fuels, and at the same time, reduce the amount of overall energy that we use to make it more efficient. But it is likely that we will end up using substantially more electricity than we do now, because all the energy use, almost all the energy use, will come from electricity. That means we have to build solar panels and wind turbines incredibly fast in the range of 10 times faster than we've been building them per year for the last several years. And that means we need probably massive public investment. It means we need far more transmission capability, building tons of new power lines, probably build them underground, although that will cost more money. And it essentially, I think this is one of the areas where the idea of a wartime mobilization is most appropriate. It's a really, really, really substantial acceleration of the rate at which we are building and deploying stuff. The last thing to say about that is that we believe that we need a ton of research and development in order to have a really well-functioning, no-carbon, prosperous economy. There's no question about that. However, sometimes people, and I think sometimes Warren uh, has been a bit guilty of this, Liz Warren, talk about how R&D, research and development, is the fundamental thing that we need to break the grip of fossil fuel industry. But it's really not. In the next few years, the most important thing is simply to deploy really good technologies that we already have, get solar panels built, do the consultations to ensure that communities are happy about them, get them on rooftops, same thing with wind, offshore wind, you name it. Um, And so this is, again, why the idea of a kind of World War II-style mobilization, I think, is so appealing and, and, and apposite, is that we know the things that we have to do. We simply have to do them much more quickly. And while the market can create solar panels vastly cheaper than coal right now, the market on its own cannot deconstruct the fossil fuel lobby, the coal industry, and so on. It's already cheaper to build new wind and solar in, a, in Georgia than it is to run the existing coal plants. But the existing coal plants are in charge, or their, their owners are in charge. So we have to aggressively take down the fossil fuel industry. We even argue that we should nationalize the oil industry, 
gradually manage its decline, make sure that its workers have good jobs throughout in that industry and then in other industries, and that we have to take the owners of these industries, like Rex Tillerson, who was the CEO of of Exxon and and put them in jail or try to put them in jail. That we need to, you know, people hate the oil industry. I mean, people absolutely hate the oil industry. It's one of the least popular industries in the country. We need to mobilize a mass movement against oil. And I think it, it may in some cases be easier to whip up a kind of populist rage against people who have spent 40 years lying to us about climate science while they themselves have been preparing for a warmer world uh, than it will be to get people really excited for a new high voltage transmission grid, which is <laughs> difficult to explain and not as sexy as it, as it might sound on, on first sight. All that electricity, whoa. You know? So yeah, so there is, I think, a positive piece. We have to mobilize and build a ton of new stuff, and that's going to take a huge amount of work. Um, but we also have to absolutely shut down the fossil fuel industry, and that will require some uncomfortably vicious politics. And just to, to just underline one, one point that Daniel went over quickly, which is about reducing demand, um, reducing demand and calibrating demand in new ways. It's not, I mean, it is sort of technically feasible to just maintain current levels of demand or, or allow for demand to grow and swap everything out with renewables. But that has a ton of environmental and social problems attached to it. So the more energy demand there is, the more physical build out we need of, of generation, transmission, distribution, um, and, and, you know, all of the sort of physical features of our energy system, each of which are land intensive, they're potentially politically problematic at the local level, if some community doesn't like the wind farm next to them, these are things that we address, and can be addressed through beautiful design and democratic planning, but it's a still a real issue, right? So the more you build, um, the more potential political battles you have, and also the more literal land you need to use, which can have downstream effects on ecosystems, etc. And then in addition to that, or as a corollary of that, the more physical build out that you need, because you're expecting, you know, demand to keep growing forever, um, the more materials, raw materials you need that are often mined elsewhere in the world. We we discuss that in the book at length. So, you know, every wind turbine, solar panel, lithium battery requires tons of raw materials currently mined under exploitative um, and quite nefarious conditions. So reducing demand is important to avoid the sort of like over capacity um, building and, and, and mining of the Earth's resources. But um, and, and also I should add that that um, this is kind of an obvious point, but it's worth stating that the less energy demand we have, the easier it is to meet our emissions targets, right? So part of what makes emissions targets co- challenging is the is literally the amount of energy that we consume and how much it would take to make that all um, carbon free. So there, those are a lot of benefits to reducing demand. But again, this is a question that's been tricky for the left in ways that we talked about earlier in terms of it's often its focus on individual consumption, not addressing the fact that energy consumption is quite unequal, that there are energy over consumers and energy under consumers. So, you know, any way that we reduce demand has to have equity at the forefront and also think about socially rational ways to calibrate our energy use. Right now, some of the reasons that energy demand is is so high and, and, and sort of difficult to regulate is that everyone's leading their individual lives, going home, turning on switches or turning them off at the same time, kind of flooding our energy system with demand at the same time, that sort of thing. So we need to think about ways that we can democratically use technology to kind of calibrate our, our energy use and pattern it in different ways. And a key piece of this, in, in addition to address making sure that equity is addressed is making sure that the public has a key role in designing this energy system and in owning this energy system. There are leftists, myself included, that have been very skeptical of attempts by privately owned um, utilities to kind of 
install, force everyone to install these smart meters to kind of measure how much energy we're using, maybe punish us for using it at certain times, um, or maybe even Enable shut remote us, shut off. Exactly, shut us off remotely if we're not, if we're behind on our bills. So I totally get um, and, and sympathize with the left skepticism around these new technologies to manage energy use. But we need to think about them in a context of public ownership, of community ownership, of worker ownership, and ways that these algorithms and other technologies could be democratically deployed in order to manage energy use and make the emissions targets easier to reach and with fewer political conflicts and environmental downsides. Well, there's a lot that both of you mentioned that I want to get into more depth on. But first, we've got to build a new electrical grid to move and store all of this energy, and we have to change how it's run. What has got to change in terms of the grid the grid's technology, its infrastructure, its organization, and critically, its ownership. There are a couple pieces. There's so much that we could say about the grid. It's enormously complex. And I think it makes sense to focus on some of the most politically salient pieces of this. So number one, to you know, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory, NREL, estimates that to have a mostly renewable system, we need to roughly double the amount of transmission capacity. That's so twice as much energy transmission. That's a lot of power lines. So we're talking, for instance, about moving a lot of power from the windy Midwest to cities on the coast. Now, we're not the first people to figure this out. Uh, A certain Barack Obama knew this very well in 2008. And when he was elected and there was a need for a stimulus, he thought, you know what? The the federal government, as part of its green stimulus, should build a new high-voltage transmission grid to move wind from the Midwest to the coastal cities. And his wonderfully helpful uh, advisors, most of whom (laughs) more advanced versions of Pete Buttigieg, were like, well, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, President Obama, uh, the federal government doesn't build the grid. They just build highways. You said we should be like Eisenhower, but Eisenhower built highways. And the private sector just doesn't build transmission lines. So sorry, can't do it. And out of this, um, the public sector, the public sector, yeah. Sorry. So they, they told they were basically like, no, 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 like er, the public sector cannot build a grid. <laughs> um, and so then Rahm Emanuel had the great idea of just like basically whipping out of his butt the high speed rail as a showpiece infrastructure instead, uh, kind of last minute. And it just sort of not, the next thing you know, there's like eight billion for that, almost none of which got built. So anyway, long story short, there is a need to build transmission. There has been a lot of effort in the private sector. Russell Gold uh, just wrote a book about this. There's been a lot of need and a lot of effort in the private sector to build new high voltage transmission capacity, but it's very difficult to do. Landowners get upset. And at this point, I think most experts would agree that without the public sector in charge, it's simply not really going to happen. So there's this one piece of it, super politically sound, is you have to transform the built environment to move clean energy around. Obama got this, but the neoliberal technocrats in his administration prevented him from doing anything about it. And we've had essentially 10 years of failure of the private sector to build high voltage transmission capacity. So we're going to have to do with the public sector. We're probably going to have to bury a lot of those lines. That's very expensive. But if that is the price of human civilization surviving, I think it's worth paying for it. And then the second bit, just to touch on briefly what Theo was talking about a bit before, is that we need to have a much more flexible energy system so that when we're using energy, We're using the sun when the sun is beating down. We're using the wind when the wind is blowing. So we use the metaphor of sunflower homes. This could be applied to buildings and industry too, where energy is used kind of in accordance to when it's available. And the long and the short of it is that requires a huge amount of automation of systems. And I think we are very concerned that the current model is those systems being automated by private utilities, which are happy to kick poor people off the grid. And it's being automated by companies like Amazon and Google with products like Alexa and Google Nest, which are automating home energy systems with these like wildly invasive technologies that destroy all of your privacy uh, with a... And allow creepy people to talk to your children. 
They do. And, and, and there's all kinds of crazy stuff happening. Like right now, a lot of the big private equity firms that are buying up distressed homes and turning them into rental properties are installing energy um, automation systems. BlackRock? Companies like BlackRock are selling automation systems that sell excess energy back to the grid when it's not being used as a way to make profit. So they're essentially, the homeowners aren't, the, or the, rather the tenants aren't benefiting from this, rather the, the real estate companies are. And, you know, it's been described as like a new fabric for like, you know, social innovation and, and profit making and so on. So we argue that we need to really have public algorithms that should be democratically controlled. Public utilities should control these. Anybody who is allowed to edit an entry on Wikipedia should be able to look into the algorithms that automate our home uh, energy use. In fact, the first major system for doing this kind of thing was called Home Aware. It was developed by researchers at Austin. It's described in this book, Surveillance Capitalism. So, you know, I think that if we are going to have really sophisticated home energy systems that respond to algorithmic control, where you put your dishes in and they get washed when the sun is shining, you put your clothes in, they wash at the right time, you walk in and out of the rooms, the lights are coming on and off, that's only going to be viable in a context where people trust the systems that are running those things. And that means that Google Nest cannot be the solution to home energy demand. If it is, you're going to have an endless war and the stuff is never going to get done. The stakes are very high. The stakes, you know, there's whether the amount of energy that we use in our homes, and if we use these flexible systems, the need for batteries plummets. The amount of energy that we use in our homes is completely related to uh, how much lithium is mined in somewhere like the north of Chile. And so I think the stakes of a public battle with the public uh, artificial intelligence groups, tech workers who are mobilizing, we have to have a big, big, big public debate and struggle over the control of energy use. And I think that's something we can win and we have to win. What about the the grid for for humans and and goods, i.e. transportation? You write that trains and buses will be important solutions in and between cities, but that electric minivans might be the real workhorse that connects it all together. Explain that and also why it won't work for just everyone who currently drives a gas car to just switch to an electric vehicle. I'll just start briefly with the last part of that question, and then um, I'll let Daniel take on the e-minivans as passion. So if we just swap out every current uh, internal combustion engine vehicle for a, a Tesla or an e-Escalade um, or any of you know what are currently quite large luxury vehicles, but even if they were more kind of mid-sized sedans instead, they're very, very resource intensive. They're Overall, over the life cycle, they're less carbon intensive. Um, they can run on electricity. Hopefully that electricity is renewable. They're not emitting while you're using them. But the materials required to make them, the comp- to make the components, are very environmentally destructive, at least under current extraction regimes. Copper, so, for example, graphite, nickel, exactly, lithium. exactly. A yes, and so a an electric vehicle requires an enormous amount of copper, much more so than an ordinary vehicle does, um, for all the internal wiring to connect the battery and the computer and the motor. And then the batteries require all of these lithium and cobalt and nickel and rare earth elements and 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 others that are mined primarily though not exclusively in the global south. And so each electric car that is produced um, represents minerals from the earth and and the exploitation of labor and often the violation of rights of indigenous communities. So we think as as an internationalist principle, first and foremost, it's important to uh, reduce the total number of vehicles and not think of transportation so much as 
individual privatized autonomy um, or mobility in passenger vehicles, but to think more collectively about how to, again, kind of just to echo earlier things we said, how to repattern transit um, and to, to as much as possible collectivize transit. However, and I'll turn this over to Daniel, if in rural and in some suburban areas, it's not always immediately feasible to sort of like lay down a lot of tracks or install trolley lines. And so there's other more flexible forms of transit that still pe- get people out of the passenger cars, um, the individual passenger cars, which are extremely wasteful because they sit, they just, they've, you know, all this stuff was mined from the earth and then they just sit there all day in a garage, um, you know, in between your commutes. Um, and you so- not only pay for repair, but every time I pay my insurance, I'm like, Jesus, this is like really one of the biggest expenses Absolutely. in my life Absolutely. is just paying for right. car insurance. Right. Um, and so um, and so we want to get people as much as possible out of those individual passenger vehicles and into collective transit and shared transit. But again, under the rubric of democratic planning, we're not trying to kind of like create just like e-lift or something like that. What's interesting about the conversation about transit is it's one of the many, it's not, it's one of many parts of this kind of Green New Deal conversation where what we're talking about is not proposing something wildly out of step with essentially the tendency of the market, but we're talking about is a very different model for controlling and, and operating it. And that is because we want to have a more efficient economy. People in the private sector want a more efficient economy to make bigger profits. We want a more efficient economy because we just cannot extract unlimited amounts of stuff from the earth and we can't throw unlimited amounts of garbage into the atmosphere. So when it comes to transportation, you are... What we're advocating, so the argument that we lay out is that, you know, we need a lot of electric buses. That's the workhorse driven by unionized drivers. But we also need these electric minivans that essentially would replace the service provided by like uh, Lyft Line or Uber Pool. And that is, is starting to come up in the market already. Ford had a program called Chariot, which didn't pan out, but they ran in San Francisco trying to replace the bus with a rideshare minivan. Helsinki had a public version, which we like a lot better, called Cutsa Plus. Now in London and in Berlin, there are experiments with public rideshare minivans that will be more sophisticated. You, in, in Helsinki, you couldn't use your actual phone. The program got killed by austerity when it, was, when it needed to just be improved. But you have in Berlin an experiment now with public rideshare minivans. You have in the UK an experiment with public rideshare minivans. In both cases, the idea is to have all these minivans be electric. And so what we're saying is this. The neoliberals, the neoliberals are right that we should shift from private car ownership to mobility services. But whereas the neoliberals see mobility services as a gigantic new market opportunity for companies like Lyft and Uber, which are only profitable when they massively exploit labor, we see mobility services as a potentially really progressive and egalitarian idea, which is the idea that rather than private car ownership, the public sector provides a spectrum of mobility options. So yeah, if it's including late, those little scooters, including those little scooters, but not everybody can scoop. But yeah, if it's late at night, you hop in the electric minivan. Uh, if you live in the suburbs, we suggest like an Appalachia or in suburbs or in indigenous reservations, worker cooperatives could own sort of like little floats of electric minivans or flotillas of electric minivans. And that would provide the vast bulk of the transportation. So I think, you know, once you get past the idea that efficiency or software or so on always has to be owned by the market, then you realize that there's a wide variety of forms of public service. And the last thing is we don't think, we don't want to just say everybody has to live in a, in a dense neighborhood. Everybody has to live in Brooklyn. What we want is a density of freedoms. And when it comes to transportation, you can have a density of freedoms in a non-super dense location with public transit, as long as you are willing to imagine public transit as being sophisticated and flexible and different from what we had before. The, every time the left tries to defend the 1950s, it loses. <laughs> and that holds in public transportation just as much as it holds in social issues or as it holds in economic planning. 
Actually, that's Bernie Sanders' long game. He wants to move back to Brooklyn. He's going to move the White House to Brooklyn, and he's going to require everyone to move to Brooklyn or imitate it convincingly. That's right. That's why he never changed his accent, right? He <laughs> <laughs> doesn't want to seem like a carpetbagger when he finally moves home. To what extent is a neoliberal green transition impossible ecologically? And to what extent is it just morally repugnant? You write, quote, We stand at the precipice of yet another energy revolution and at a fork in the road. Solar-powered capitalism with a whole new set of opportunities for profit and pillage, or an internationalist Green New Deal, a historic opportunity to remake global power structures and our relationship to the natural world. We argue that the latter stands a much better chance of actually decarbonizing the planet. Right now, the kind of like neoliberal energy Twitter is coalescing around an idea that through market forces alone, we could limit global warming to roughly 2.7 degrees Celsius warming, which is well beyond the safety bound that anybody thinks is safe, but is less than the wildly catastrophic three degrees Celsius. There are huge risk bars, so it's not even sure. But there is a neoliberal argument kind of coalescing, which is that if we just double down on the market innovations, focus on the private sector, we're going to have to suck it up a certain amount of warming. But you know what? we can still get there. And I guess what I would say is this. First of all, we talk about this in the book. We sort of say that part of the faux Green New Deal or the neoliberal centrist idea is that they are willing to risk you know, hundreds of millions of climate casualties in places like South Asia and Africa because they're not really willing to go for a more aggressive target. Um, I think, is it plausible that under neoliberalism, you could ultimately limit warming to two and a half degrees Celsius? I'm sure that's true. I do think there is a political question. If your model of green transition is to make the poor half of humanity just eat it so that the other half can do fine, or maybe the poor two-thirds have what I would call like a carbon Volcker shock, you just force the bottom half or bottom two-thirds, even bottom three-quarters to pay the price for a green transition that really benefits those at the top. I'm not sure that's socially or politically sustainable. And that, I think, is the path. It's global gilet jaune. It's like global gilet jaune. It's the path to eco-apartheid and it's the path to eco-fascism, right? There's just no democratic way to enlist a majority of people to support those people eating it (laughs) for the benefit of the very rich. So I don't it's not that eco-fascism is going to be on the ballot. It's that that is the inevitable result. I think the most likely result of the neoliberal green strategy, which may not even succeed ecologically, is almost certain not to succeed socially or politically, that seems to me an insanely vaster risk than massively increasing public investment and maybe having a few contractors, you know, skim a little off the top. Yeah, I think that just to circle back to our kind of initial answers about what what makes the Green New Deal unique as a paradigm for climate politics is its recognition of the connection between the climate crisis and the crisis of socioeconomic inequality. And that connection is works out on a political level in the ways that Daniel just described in terms of our vision for mobilizing the you know the ninety nine percent um to to target the the overconsumption and rapacious extraction of the one percent and you know et cetera. but but it, it's also an an empirical kind of fact in terms of the way that that vastly unequal societies are actually more exploitative in term more rapacious in terms of resource use and can get away with kind of runaway emissions. And so inequality, first of all, in in a society with vast economic inequality, the most elite are always going to overconsume. And without a public sector that's like muscular and rigorous, there's not going to be a way to kind of limit their consumption. And then this kind of becomes a vicious cycle because in highly unequal societies, even if they're nominally democratic, the elite have 
have a stranglehold on the political system, and so do fossil fuel companies and all sorts of other corporations um, that that account for lots of emissions. So without tackling the issue of economic inequality at the forefront and kind of having that be the centerpiece for your climate politics, you're not actually going to have sustainable, politically or environmentally or economically sustainable progress on climate um, because of the way that the political and the economic system interact, which is something that neoliberal technocrats just cannot get their heads around. On the level of the the politics of negotiations between nation states, this also holds the U.S. remains, you write, quote, remains the world's second largest emitter of carbon behind China. In per capita terms, U.S. emissions are over twice as high, and our aggregate historical emissions over one-fifth of the global total eclipse every other country's. What should the U.S. role be with a Green New Deal, ideally, in terms of this overwhelming global responsibility, but also very pragmatically speaking, how the U.S. might, in taking responsibility, help get other countries on board, including middle-income and poor countries, where people lack access to energy and countries that are not going to be happy about being told uh, that they don't get to benefit from the same fossil fuel development model that made the first world what it is. So we think that first and foremost, um, the best thing that the United States and any powerful country in the global north can do is to aggressively decarbonize and to also through that stop being a political and economic impediment to global cooperation and global decarbonization. So a Green New Deal, if implemented along the radical, aggressive lines that we outline in the book, would be a boon to global cooperation just because it would re- you know, reduce global emissions, but also r- remove the U.S. As, as an impediment to decarbonization globally. But we also make it clear that kind of thinking about the Green New Deal in, in sort of nationally bounded terms is is a problem, both because of you know the existing inter- global interconnectedness economically and and politically, but also because this can kind of end up in some pernicious places. We've seen kind of plans coming out from some presidential candidates for kind of greening our military or or thinking of the U.S. as kind of a leader in a competitive sense, um, kind of we're going to beat other countries to decarbonization. And, and we think that both of those, well, first of all, we should just defund the military as much as possible because they're, they're a terrible institution for many reasons, including that they're carbon intensive. And, and as Bernie's plan has it, we should kind of put that, that money as much as possible towards public investment in renewable energy. But also we shouldn't think of this as as a as a kind of zero sum competitive race like every country has a lot to do to reduce its emissions and create green jobs and the US as much as possible should be part of that effort um, rather than impeding it or thinking that we need to be number 1 or something like that but we also kind of outline in addition like much more concrete and we think kind of politically useful ways to think about how the decarbonization in the United States relates to to other countries in the world. And what we don't think is useful is framing kind of the international arena of climate politics in terms of these technocratic, gradual, non-binding agreements like the Paris, Paris Accords. I mean, liberals are and maybe all of us are kind of rightfully up in arms about the U.S. leaving the Paris Agreement, but the Paris Agreement also did not do very much to put it extremely diplomatically um, and was was kind of prevented from doing so by great powers like the U.S. and also China and, and, other, and other countries in the world. And so we need like a different venue and setting and set of incentives for uh, maybe not starting with global, but at least regional or transnational cooperation around climate. And so one, one of the ways that we propose doing that is to 
get out of these, you know, closed doors, technocratic, lobbyist filled, um, smoke filled, whatever rooms uh, of these, cl- you know, do nothing climate accords. I don't and think act- you can smoke in those rooms anymore. Yeah, whatever. Okay. Gonna, Unless it's John Boehner's office. Yeah. Anyway. There is a wine cave somewhere where people are yes. smoking. Yes. <laughs> and carbonizing. <laughs> Um, so we start, um, instead of those kind of meeting venues, we think more about how is the global economy actually organized? The global economy is organized um, through the supply chains that produce, distribute um, the goods that we use. And those are a great place to start because a lot of those supply chains are quite essential to decarbonizing within the U.S. Like we can't decarbonize within the U.S. without lithium batteries. Well, we can't make lithium batteries without extracting lithium from somewhere. And yes, there are deposits in the U.S., but they're not as good quality as the some of the deposits in um, in Latin America or Australia. So that immediately already sets us into relation with other places in the world. So the question is, how are we going to govern and who is going to govern those relationships? And what would, for example, a left progressive democratic and low carbon vision of trade um, for the very necessary planet and life-saving technologies look like? And so we kind of engage, we engage on the train of supply chains and engage on the train of, of trade policies, starting thinking, you know, bilaterally, multilaterally again i don't think like the international arena is the best place to start but thinking about relationships between between economies that produce and consume green technology and then just to kind of briefly we also think of transnational or global climate politics as an arena, um, not just for policymakers to make more progressive trade agreements, but also for forms of transnational solidarity and sort of what would it look like for um, workers making electric buses in the U.S. to actually, as part of their demands in their contract battles with their bosses or with the state, um, actually make demands around, well, the lithium that's sourced to make our batteries has to come from uh, communities that have agreed for it to be extracted and that have a direct stake in the ownership and are in direct contact with those communities, um, you know, using our amazing social media tools that have been co-opted by capital and kind of, you know, organizing transnationally. All of this is... Or vice is, versa, right. when factory workers making batteries are in on strike, that lithium miners can can join them. Right, exactly. And, you know, so thinking about supply chains, not just of channels of investment or profit making, but also means of connection between workers and communities in spatially dispersed ways that give them opportunities for leverage. And we could, you know, get into these details more or not, but there there are some features of the kind of electric vehicle economy, for example, that are actually opening up interesting sites um, um, for worker and community leverage that we could see kind of reverberating across across the world. Nancy Pelosi called it, quote, the green dream or whatever. Others have said that we can do easy techno fixes, and some have slipped into despair and say that it's delusional to think that we can do anything at all. You argue that dealing with climate despair and moving to action requires what the left has always needed, which is determined hope. Naomi Klein writes in your preface, quote, The interplay between lofty dreams and earthly victories has always been at the heart of moments of progressive transformation. She continues, We have a hell of a lot of work to do. What will sustain us in the difficult years to come is a dream of the future that is not just better than ecological collapse, but a whole lot better than the barbaric ways our system treats human and non-human life right now. In other words, affect is key. We need to make hope and embed it within a practice of sustained action. 
to, to cite Miriam Kaba, hope is a discipline. How should we deal with the really dreadful feelings that climate catastrophe conjures up in a way that instead of immobilizing us, catalyzes action? For many, I mean, we're in this because we've been driven to it, I think, by despair and, and fear in some ways. Um, climate change is what keeps me up uh, into the early hours uh, at night, but it is also what gets me out of bed in the morning. It's the thing that if I don't feel like I'm working on it, I just don't know what else to do. I got into this, you know, it's funny, I met Kate Aronoff, one of our co-authors, um, because she was interviewing me back when she was a, a journalist, or she's been a journalist for a long time, but she was writing a story about the graduate uh, workers uh, union drive at, at NYU, which I was a, a part of. And Kate has spent a lot of time in and, and around social movements, and I think understands that world very well. And Alyssa, another one of our co-authors, has written very movingly about the affect and, and organizing and the ways that collective struggle give you the kind of not just the courage, but the like the everyday support that it requires to kind of to, to move forward in an often very very difficult struggle. And and of course, D and I am descended from people in, in Latin America and also involved in struggle. And I think you know, and all of us who have a kind of a history thinking with, spending time with, and, and partaking in left struggles know that victory is not assured. Um, and you have to find some way to keep going, even knowing that you might win and you might lose. I think that with climate change, the really big difference is that you can't just build for the long haul without worrying about very everyday victories. There are, there are people in the U.S. left right now who think about a 20 or 30 or 40 year plan to, let's say, win social democracy. And it's like, you know, one campaign at a time, put your head down and don't don't rush things. And I think with climate, you you can't do that. The discipline, the disciplining effect of climate politics is that we need to start winning really essentially immediately, very, very, very short term. So to me, it's a long wind of way. To me, the special thing about climate change, besides its insane capacity for making you feel bad, is that it forces you to imagine very, very short-term victories. It creates the conditions under which I think those victories are possible because climate change causes so much damage that people are, are realizing. And so I feel like where I've this has all pushed me, and I think it's pushed us in this book, is to articulate really, really concrete strategies and things that we can win just in the next two or three or four years. Think about, we could build public housing of really high quality, that's really green, that could be up and running in 2022, 2023. Um, we could shorten work hours in that time period. You know, We could come to agreements on lithium uh, in that time period. We could expand public transit in that time period. We could put up a lot of solar panels, put up a lot of wind turbines in that time period, and we could shut down a lot of fossil fuels, stop a lot of pipelines, and pull back ones that already exist. We could shut down Keystone XL. We could shut down Dakota Access Pipeline. So I think that it has been an unusual exercise for me, as someone who grew up thinking about the Latin American left, thinking about capitalism, these really big issues, to get really into the nuts and bolts and think about things like heat pumps and energy-efficient windows and building retrofits. But the flip side is realizing, holy shit, like there is a huge amount that if we could win a bit of power and make some green investment in the right places, we could literally reduce inequality and carbon emissions in the same time and in the same places. And I mean, in a way, that is the only thing that gives me hope is just being able to visually sort of visualize that and to look at the policies and run some numbers and see that that's feasible and to, to fight for that. And I think that if we really train our eyes in the short term, just putting up some wins the next few years, then that will feel very feasible. That is doable. I think we, we can all make the case those things are doable. 
And that's just what we, and then we can just carry on. And it's like, I don't have to agree with the person I'm struggling with over what the most likely outcome is for 2035, even never mind 2050. We just have to agree on a project for the next few years. Um, and then the very last thing I'll just say is, you know, we didn't really talk about this in this conversation, but in the book, I think our kind of theory of how this might come about is that we know there's a big global recession coming. Um, we know that it will coincide with climate emergencies because they happen every day, that there's going to be the recession will coincide with something like Hurricane Maria or Irma or Harvey or the wildfires in California, you name it. And there is opening up, like I think, a, a really unique opportunity. And it's very, very horrible that it has to come in this way. But there is opening up an opportunity where I think a lot of people will ask themselves, how are we going to recover from this confluence of economic and climactic disasters? And if we are ready with plans that are feasible, that are doable, that can be implemented right away, then we can make huge political progress. And that, yeah, that analysis, that focus on short-term concrete victories is what keeps me going. It's literally the only thing that keeps me getting out of bed um, in the morning. Don't talk to me about genetic engineering. Don't talk to me about AI. <laughs> I have like enough dystopia on the mind. But there is enough that like, there is enough we can achieve. We just have to do it. And I feel like day in and day out, more and more people are joining this movement with that short-term concrete focus. And I don't know. I don't know if there's a better time to be alive in the climate movement than right now. I don't think so. I'm really happy to be here and happy to be in this fight. Um, I think that, you know, one one thing that that we've all learned from studying social movements and participating in social movements is that it's some kind of hard to exactly specify, but some kind of combination between of anger and, and shared grievances and grievances that are experienced as collective, right? It's not my individual fault that everything is fucked up and that we have a climate crisis, but it is the fault of the system. And I'm, you know, bearing some of the costs of that, right? So some kind of sense of shared grievances, um, a shared sense of injustice, combined with some sense of possibility that things could be otherwise, that things could change. And I think, you know, on the one hand, all of the sort of coincidence of all of these different crises is scary because we know, you know, the, the f impending financial crisis, the ongoing climate crisis, all of these is, is opens up possibilities for revanchist politics, for authoritarianism, et cetera. But, you know, I, I would also say that the sort of breakdown of the neoliberal consensus that's unfolding um, in lots of countries around the world is a necessary precondition for people to um, more strongly kind of articulate those grievances in shared terms and point fingers at, at enemies, whether it's the 1%, the fossil fuel executives, their, their you know, politician henchmen, whoever it is, to kind of do that. And because the order is breaking down in sort of scary and accelerated ways, but also to imagine what their future might look like because the, the present is so obviously unsustainable, right? So you do have these, and I don't want to downplay the, the scariness and, and, and violence that can come along with such processes of social disorder and breakdown, but I do think that they also um, enable people, give, make it very clear who, what the problem is, who, who the enemies are, and also um, allow people to imagine other sorts of social arrangements. As and Susan then, Sarandon said, it heightens the contradictions. Exactly. And then the, the trick is, and this kind of speaks to those visceral victories and, and you know, structure tests and like, like you know, very concrete campaigns that, that we talk about in, in the book, the, the sort of trick is to kind of out of that sense of grievance and out of that sense that the world could and actually must urgently must be otherwise than it is to kind of cultivate hope. And I love that idea of hope as a discipline, because I think this idea that hope is like sunny optimism or naivete is, is, is nuts, because in order to sustain hope in the face of, of uncertainty, risk, and danger, you actually need kind of shared courage, militancy, and fidelity to a project. And um, that's like actually the most noble things that humans can do. Well, Daniel Donna Cohen and Theoria Francos, thank you both very much. 
Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Daniel Aldana Cohen and Thea Rio Francos are, with Alyssa Battistoni and Kate Aronoff, co-authors of A Planet to Win, Why We Need a Green New Deal. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production develops technology and the combining together of various processes into a social whole only by sapping the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the worker. While other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis. Music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Our communications coordinators are Julia Rock and Zachary Nin. Our senior advisor is Thea Riofrancos. Check out our vast archives at thedigradio.com. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio. And please find us wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, you can also leave us a lovely review there. Those reviews, it's our understanding, help introduce us to new listeners. But what really does that is you telling your friends in real life on social media, however, that you like the show and that they should listen. Please make propaganda for us. And do find us at patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing up and running strong. Even a few bucks a month is huge. <laughs>